Abundant Life. My name is Mike, and it is an absolute honor to be with you today. It has been quite a month, has it not? I mean, we were celebrating Thanksgiving next week, and we had Veterans Day last week, and before that, there was this little thing called the election, you might have noticed, and then that was on the heels of a Halloween Eve with a full blue moon. I don't know about you, but my kids are all actually quite a bit older. They're all young adults, older teens. And so Halloween is nowhere near as fun as it was when they were cute and adorable and, you know, (laughs) nice. Um, Last year, actually, they all scattered to be with friends on Halloween. And so my wife and I thought it'd be fun to text them dad jokes all night. You know, so we we texted them jokes like, uh, what's a vampire's favorite food? Nectarines. Or what do you call a haunted chicken, a poultry geist, right? We were hilarious. Uh, finally, we get one word text back from my 17-year-old son. It just said, stop. He did not appreciate the love. And Abundant Life, that's what we are talking about today. We're actually talking about love. And not just any love. We're talking about the kind of love that is expansive, the kind of love that is outlandish, the kind of love that actually flows from the person of God. And in fact, that's the very first truth that we want to focus on today, and that is that God is the source of love. In fact, this is what it says in 1 John chapter 4. It says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So friends, not only do we love because God first loved us, but you see from this verse that that God is love. And when we love, we're actually participating in his character. So much so that John writes that that when we don't love, it's like we don't even know who he is because that is who God is. That is the source of all love. God is love. It's not a character quality. It is the character, the personhood of God. And God says some incredible things about how he loves us in the scripture. For example, in Jeremiah 31.3, God is speaking and he says, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. Or in Isaiah 49, God is speaking again. He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Friends, aren't these verses incredible? You see, what God is saying is, is he loves us and, and then he describes his love. It is, it is an everlasting love. It never ends. It is an unfailing love. His love will not fail us. It is a love that, that is so expansive. In the Hebrew, it's hesed. And that's what it means, this kind of never-ending, never-failing love. That's the kind of love that God has for you and for me. And then he says, look, a mother can't forget her child at her breast. He says, I will never forget you because I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. And then Jesus arrived and embodies tangibly that verse. This is is so expansive. This is why love is so ultra, mega, super important. I, I just want you to understand that I want to be the kind of person that just dives into the ocean of God's love and points other people to it again and again and again. 
Now, I also wanna let you know, because I've been in ministry for 29 years, that I have met quite a few Christians who, when they hear that we're talking about the topic of love, they kind of roll their eyes. And they say to themselves something like, hey, can't we get past this? Can't we get beyond talking about love to something more practically relevant to our lives? Like say, you know, eschatology. And, and the, the issue is we can't get past this topic because love is the thing. In fact, St. John of the Cross says this, that at the evening of our life, we will be judged on love. My buddy Jeff is a missionary to Kurdistan. And one of the tools they've used over there evangelistically for the last 18 years is showing the movie Passion of the Christ. And Jeff was telling me that one time he was over there and they were showing the film. It was a community that was gathered and, and there was kind of a patriarch of the community who was there sitting right next to Jeff in the front row. And at one point in the film, the, the patriarch, he just stops the film. He says, stop the film, stop the film. And it was at the point in the film where Jesus, the character played by Jim Caviezel, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the patriarch turns to my friend Jeff and he says, my friend, you must tell me. He says, did they really torture Jesus like this? And Jeff said, yes, yes, they really did. And then the man began to tear up and he, he got emotional and he said, and my friend, you must tell me the truth. Did Jesus really pray? Father, forgive them. Did he, did he ask his father God to forgive the people who tortured him? Did he really do this? And Jeff got emotional as well. And he said, yes, my friend, this is true. And they embraced in that moment and an eternity was transformed in that instant because friends, don't miss this, because love is irresistible. It's irresistible. And so we cannot get beyond that. And not only can we not get beyond it because love is the thing, we can't get beyond it because friends, frankly, we're not that good at it. I wanna read you a quote from Gandhi. He says this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. If Christians would really live the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Oh, that hurts, right? That hurts. What he's saying is actually love is the most evangelistic tool we have at our disposal. And if we would learn to live this kind of love, the love that Jesus had, he said all of India would be following after him. So it's so important for us to be challenged in this way. Because friends, if we're not careful, check this out, we can always find reasons not to love. We can always find reasons not to love. For example, she hurt me on purpose or my partner betrayed me or I'm the one who was lied to. I'm the one who's been cheated. I'm the one who's been stabbed in the back. It was my father who wounded me like this. It was my mother who abandoned me this way. I will love them when they start acting lovable. But friends, I want you to understand that is not what Jesus taught and that is not the life that he modeled for us. 
So what I wanna do is I wanna get into the teachings of Jesus. This is the very pinnacle, not only of Jesus' teaching on love, I would argue this is the pinnacle of the planet's teaching on love. I don't think the world has ever seen teaching like this. So let's just jump into this. This is from Matthew chapter five. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon the world has ever heard. Jesus is speaking and he says this. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, if you ever doubted that Jesus was a radical, that passage alone should be enough to convince you. You see, it just stretches the boundary of common sense in this fallen world we live in. And what Jesus does in that passage is he starts with what was the law, with what the people would have been familiar with. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And this was justice, kind of proportionally speaking. In other words, what it did was it limited the punishment for a crime. It, it, it sort of evened everything out. That was actually a massive step forward for morality in the barbaric world in which the law was given. In other words, what you couldn't do is you couldn't enact capital punishment for a $3 crime. And so the, the, the response needed to be proportional, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But you see, what Jesus does is he stands on the foundation of the law and he fulfills it and then he points us to a higher place. He points us to where the law was intended to take us in the first place. Because Jesus knows that if everyone does this, takes an eye, takes a tooth, that the whole world will be living with eye patches and false teeth. That wasn't the intended purpose of the law. The law was given to create a people who wouldn't think of taking an eye in the first place. Who wouldn't dream of taking a tooth in the first place? That was the point of the law, and that's what Jesus fulfills. And then he says this. He says, if someone wants to sue you for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. In other words, make sure they have a matching outfit. And then he says, if someone forces you to go one mile, you volunteer too. You know, friends, this was in reference to a law that was on the books in the first century. It had to do with Rome. You might remember that Rome were the occupiers. They, they were the baddie bads in this day in Israel. And a Roman soldier was legally able to conscript any Israeli citizen, male or female, and force them to carry their pack. A Roman pack would weigh up to 100 pounds. And so this Roman soldier could grab any male or female and give them this 100-pound pack and force them to carry it one mile out of their way. Of course, in Rome, they had all these mile markers, Roman efficiency. They knew what a mile was. And so Jesus is saying, if a soldier interrupts your day and makes you carry his pack a mile out of your way, 
He says, you volunteer to go two miles. Now, friends, I want you to understand this would have landed politically to those who were listening to Jesus in this day. They would have said, wait, wait, what is, what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus pro-Rome? No, my friends, he's not pro-Rome. He's pro-love. That's at the base of everything that he's talking about here. He's saying, don't win the fight, win the glory for God. And so I want you to know that this is relevant for us today. In other words, however you're feeling about the recent election, whether you're happy or you're sad about the results, here's what you need to know, that we have an opportunity to love those on the other side of the aisle, to serve them, to pray for them, and to bless them practically the way Jesus is arguing right here. He's saying, don't revel in your rights, but reveal the goodness of God. Turn the other cheek. Do not resist. Friends, these things, they don't feel like winning, but when you do them, who wins? Love wins. Who's love? God is love. Are you with me? All right, and then he says this. He says something that's so radical. He says, love your enemies. In other words, it's not just that you're to turn the other cheek to the one who's persecuting you just to do something like that. He's he's saying, you don't even need to tolerate your enemies or you don't need to do what I tend to do, which is ignore your enemies. He's saying, you are to love your enemies and you are to pray for those who persecute you. You're to bless those who are coming at you with hurt. And, and, And I just want you to understand, Jesus never once taught us anything that he did not model perfectly for us. So friends, this is a hard truth he's bringing, but then I want you to see that this is Jesus washing the feet of Judas. This is Jesus not throwing the first stone, but forgiving the adulteress. This is Jesus reinstating Peter, who denied him three times on the worst night of Jesus' life. This is our Lord, our only begotten of our heavenly Father, saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive the ones who pulled the beard from my face. Forgive the ones who put the crown of thorns on my head and mocked me as they beat me, who who flayed my back wide open and then put a purple robe on it. Forgive the ones who nailed my hands to a rough wooden cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If we live like this, Jesus says, then we'll be true children of our heavenly Father. And then Jesus reveals the heart of the Father. He says, your heavenly Father gives sunlight to both the good and the bad. Now, I know most of us watching this message, we live in the Pacific Northwest. I hail from Seattle. And so I want you to know that there we have, you know, even in July, we've got more cloudy days than sunny days, right? So sunshine means something to us in the Pacific Northwest. In Seattle, I want you to know that people, when the sun comes out, they get happy and they get friendly and they get productive and they get optimistic and it's a wonderful way to live 19 days a year it's fantastic and 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 then you know the reality is uh it goes away right by the way I want you to understand you might not know this that Seattle is the number one market for sunglasses in America. That's right, we, we purchase more sunglasses than any other city in America. And it's not because we're cool. 
it's because when the sun comes out, we, we literally are like, oh goodness, what is that? And we can't, we can't drive. We end up in the ditch. We cannot, like, like the sunshine just throws us right off. And so we run right out to the sunglass hut and we buy some sunglasses and everything's wonderful. And we enjoy those for a day or two. And then the sun goes away for a week or 10 months. And so like good Seattleites, we compost them. And then the sun comes out and the whole cycle repeats. Anyway, that's for free. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is that God is the one who brings this gift, this blessing of sunshine and vitality and, and you know, the energy, the photosynthesis reality of sunlight. He says, uh, on the good and the bad. And then Jesus says, and God makes rainfall on the righteous and unrighteous. Let me tell you what I always thought that meant. I always thought it meant, and God sends bad stuff to everybody too. That's what I thought. See, I, I had this idea that the sunshine was good and the rain meant bad. It was joy and pain, sunshine and rain. But friends, that's Milli Vanilli theology and like the band, that's fake. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, it wasn't until I had a chance to go to the Holy Land, I led a, a team there and we got a discounted tickets because we took our trip in August and it really wasn't a, a wise move. I should have paid the extra money to come at a different time of the year because in August, friends, in the Holy Land, it is hot. I, I mean, it is so, it is surface of the sun hot. It's like little kids on the street melting lead and making coins hot. It, and, and it's not a dry heat at all. Literally, it's like living in a wet, oven hot and and so I'm over there and by the way wilderness is everywhere and the wilderness is not what we think of here in the Pacific Northwest it's desert over there and so I started to realize as I was walking around the holy land that the rain meant something rain meant vitality Rain meant that, that the fields would grow and the herds and, and, your, and your, 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 they could graze and, and your, your crops would grow. Like, oh my goodness, I, I realized what Jesus was saying. He was saying that God, your heavenly father, brings sunshine and life and energy and vigor and youth to the good and the bad. And he brings rain and restoration and rejuvenation and survival to the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, the posture that God, our heavenly father has toward everyone is to pour out blessing and kindness. It just blew me away. And I want you to understand that theologically, this is a phrase called common grace, common grace. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. It doesn't mean universalism, that it doesn't matter what you believe or how horribly you behave. That's not it. It's simply about God's posture toward us, that God's riches and his kindness and his gifts are poured out all over the earth, all over all people everywhere, because it's his kindness that brings us to a knowledge of him. And that's why he wants us to love those who are opposed to us, because he loves those who are opposed to him. That's why Jesus doesn't want us to win a fight with our enemies. He wants us to win our enemies and perhaps they will become friends. And the only way to win our enemies is to offer them love when they offer us hate. It's to offer them goodness when they offer us grossness. It's to use the strength that Jesus gives us not to beat the unlovable out of them, friends, but to care for them by loving them. And perhaps 
they will come to a knowledge of God's love. And so today, abundant life, I, I want you to embrace the challenge of outlandish love. Embrace the challenge of over-the-top love. Embrace the challenge of this kind of ridiculous love. And the reason why we seek to love others like this is because it's how Jesus has chosen to love us. So how are you doing with this highest and holiest challenge that the world has ever seen? Well, if you're like me, you need God's help with it. See, who is an enemy in your world? Who would you rather gossip about than pray for? Who would you rather judge than love? Who would you rather hold on to bitterness about than forgive? You know, as a pastor through the years, I have received a lot of love, a lot of attaboys, a lot of high fives, a lot of affirmation. But I do want you to know that pastors also take shots. They take criticisms, they get negative emails, they just, you know, through the years, there have been these times where people have not liked a way that I've led, or they've not liked a thing that I've said, or they've not liked the fact that I'm hobbit-sized, or that I look like, you know, Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, or they don't resonate with my self-deprecating humor, that kind of thing. And, and so I want to tell you a story. One year, we did this thing. In fact, we do this every year, Abundant Life. It's called Easter, and we celebrate it every year at, at my church. And, and so it, it, when, we, when we gear up for Easter, I want you to know that, that we do this prayerfully, and we do everything purposefully. And we come at it, you know, months in advance. We start to really, you know, brainstorm and seek the face of God because we know that on Easter Sunday, our folks will bring their friends and they will bring their family. And they, it, it's almost like an open house to the community where people we don't see at any time during the year, they will come. And, and so we don't do anything that we don't normally do uh, the other 52 weeks a year, but we do everything with just a little bit more spit and polish. And so this particular Easter, it was fantastic. And we celebrated thousands and thousands in our facility, which is, you know, back when you could come to church uh, physically. And there were hundreds of spiritual decisions for the Lord. We also invited 75 uh, of our members of the congregation to participate in what's called a cardboard testimony, where on one side of the cardboard, it was something that a challenge or a trial that they needed to trust Jesus with. And then they, they turned it over. On the other side, it was how God had met them in that challenge. And, and through these services over the course of our weekend, we received a thousand positive responses. It was exhausting, but it was also exhilarating and God was glorified throughout the entire thing. So after Easter, about a week later, I get a letter in the mail and I'm pretty excited. I'm thinking, oh great, this is another letter from a heart set on fire. Uh, but it wasn't exactly that. So let me read it to you. It, it started off, Dear Pastor Mike, which sounds pleasant enough, but continues, I'm writing to express my concern about my experience at church last Sunday. And so suddenly my mood shifts just a little bit. Uh, again, I'm gonna read you the letter, but it's totally edited to be a little shorter and anonymous. She writes, I attended on Sunday for the 11 a.m. Easter service and found the experience to be less than satisfactory. I was looking forward to a joyous Easter celebration such as I've experienced in the past. I have never been so disappointed in all my life. She uses the word disappointed about six more times. 
I used to be a member of your church. And then she talks about leaving a number of years ago and the church she now attends and the pastor of that church, who's a buddy of mine. She says, I have been back a couple of times to hear you speak what was disappointed each time and didn't return until last Sunday. For some reason, I, attended a, I ended up attending the services rather than making the drive to my church, a mistake I won't make again. On Easter Sunday, I found that none of the music was even remotely related to Easter and unsingable. That was disappointing. None of the people around me were singing, so I felt like I was singing by myself and finally stopped. That was more disappointing. And I was disappointed with your sermon. It was not like the wonderful sermons I heard when you first became pastor. I thought you were great. However, this sermon was greatly disappointing. It was simplistic without the depth I expected. You asked the question, why Jesus? That was the title of the message. But there wasn't a compelling answer. It did not touch my heart or challenge my mind. So when I left the service, I felt I hadn't enjoyed Easter at all, which was a huge letdown. Very disappointing for such an important day. Instead, I felt rather sad and empty from the experience. Normally, I wouldn't write or say anything, but your church used to mean a lot to me. Now it's a big, busy church with lots of activity, but left me feeling like I'd been to a mediocre concert, not a worship service at a church I used to love. I wouldn't recommend it. I doubt I'll return again. Sincerely, and in him. And she signed her name. Now, friends, I want to give you some insight into my processing, and it's not all pretty. And I'm not sharing with you because it's all pretty. I'm actually sharing it with you to be a little bit vulnerable here because the truth is I did not feel like loving her after reading that letter. And that's actually the point. See, the point is what Jesus says in this passage, it's about loving people you don't feel like loving. And that's exactly where I was in this moment. And, and so I began immediately to process responses to her in my mind. I, I don't know if you ever do this, where you just sort of come up with, with things to say in your mind where no one else is around. I, I actually know you have. I've seen you talking to nobody in your car. So, so I was doing that. And, and the first response I came up with, I just wanted to, it to be short and to the point. I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just quote Jesus back to her. I'll just send her a little postcard with a quote from Jesus. And so I thought, what would be right to the point? Get behind me, Satan, sincerely and in him. Uh, now, again, that's not the right thing to do. It's, it's actually the wrong thing to do. But the truth is, I want you to think about this for the moment. It's sincerely offered because I want you to think, who is it that wants pastors discouraged? Who is it that's always running pastors down, that, that's always whispering in the wings, not compelling? This was shallow. It didn't move. It was disappointing. See, that's not God's words. Those are Satan's words. And so I bring these up just to share this with you that, that maybe you think just a little bit differently about pastors. You know, your pastors are the ones who are hanging themselves out to dry week after week after week. All they're trying to do is point people to Jesus. And yet they and their families live in this glass bubble and, and open to criticism from all directions all the time. And, and I bring this up because I want you to know that in this season, Abundant Life, if you feel like maybe just going to town on one of your pastors or 
or even in this season, your elders who are serving, you know, thanklessly and, and late nights and, and these kind of things. And you have this thought, I just want to go and I want to give them a piece of my mind. And, and you just go kind of preparing to rant. I want you to think for a moment about who you're working for. Because it's God's enemy that wants to discourage. It's God's enemy that wants to dishearten. It's God's enemy who wants to, for, for pastors and for elders and for church leaders to feel like nothing that they're doing is working for the kingdom of God. So, so just keep that in mind. If you wanna help, help by building up, help by coming alongside, help by breathing a kind word, an encouraging word. That's the way we come alongside. So that's for free. That was the first letter I thought to send and, and I didn't send it. The second letter I thought to send was, I just wanted to pull a transcript of the message because there was so much theological truth in it. There was so much biblical reality in it. And I just wanted to ask a question like, what part of our loving heavenly father caring for us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross and to raise again from the grave in order to forgive all of our sins and invite us into abundant life with him? Did you find particularly shallow and unmoving. And again, I didn't send that letter either. The third response I thought of, and this is a little ironic because I actually did have other things to do with my time. Uh, the third response is I just wanted to tell her one story uh, around the service that she attended, the 11 o'clock Easter service. And it was about a buddy of mine. I had been coaching his son's soccer team for about five years. That's how we became friends. And I had known his story. A couple of years previous, his wife left him and their two children. She decided that she had had enough of family life and was having affairs and she just left. And so he's just trying to keep his head above water and, and, and just figure things out. And he starts dating a colleague at his place of work and, and a really wonderful woman. And, and yet then they end up getting pregnant. And that wasn't a part of their game plan. Nobody had that on the agenda, but there it was. And so they decide, you know what? We're gonna try to do this right. We're gonna bring our families together. Let's figure out where we stand in faith. And I happened to know he was showing up at Overlake. They were bringing their whole family, but, but he was still trying to figure out how he felt about God, how he felt about marriage, how he felt about life, etc. And they must've arrived late because the entire blended clan was right there on the front row. And I could tell as I was preaching that he was tracking with me. I could tell that he was just locked in. He's just active listening, completely unlike me talking to a camera right now. I'm trusting that you're with me. And, and, and then the cardboard testimonies started one after one. And I could tell that he was emotional, that tears were coming down his face and dropping off his cheeks. And then at some point he began to sob and his shoulders began to shake. And he became so emotional that he leaned forward on his shoulder and he took his shirt and he pulled his shirt up over his face and he just sobbed, shaking there in the front row. And his girlfriend was just rubbing his back saying, it's okay, honey, it's okay, sweetie, it's okay. See, God renovated a heart that day. God does what God loves to do. Take someone in the midst of their pain and lift them from that muddy place and put their feet on solid ground. God was moving powerfully in that moment, transforming a life and bringing new hope and new vitality and a new direction and a new sense of purpose and identity in him. And I felt like saying to this woman who wrote the letter, I am so sorry because the services that I went to 
God was moving and God was loving and God was inviting and God was transforming. And I'm just so sorry that you didn't have the eyes to see it. By the way, I followed up with my buddy and that was exactly what happened. God revolutionized his life that day and he has since been baptized and he is standing tall in his faith. And about a year after that, I was invited to participate with these two as they exchanged their wedding vows. And I got a a view from the front row of God's transformative action right there. It was such a beautiful, beautiful thing. But even though that story is true and I felt justified in sending it, I knew inherently that wasn't the right way to go as well. I wanted to love her outlandishly the way that Jesus has loved me. And so I just asked Jesus, I said, Lord, what would you have me do? How would you have me respond? And I got an idea. And so I took a a, a friend of mine and I, we got online and we sent her some flowers we had the grand spring arrangement delivered to her. And I did write her a little card. It's the only card that I actually wrote and sent. And it simply said this. It said, got your letter, praying good things this year for both of us. God's rich blessings, Pastor Mike. And when I sent it, I experienced the pleasure of the Lord. I experienced God just meeting me in that moment saying, yeah, that's it. Take it higher, elevate this reality. Love her the way that I love you. And so I sent that off and I felt this incredible pleasure of God over my life and and I didn't expect a response. In fact, I actually didn't want one. I I really did have some things I needed to do as pastor of this church. And so uh, I just wanted to release her and release it to Jesus and just be done. But about a week later, I did get a response and I'll just read it to you quickly. She writes, Dear Pastor Mike, thank you very much for the flowers that you sent. They arrived today. A totally unexpected gesture. Really? She didn't see that one coming? Shocker. Yes, we need to pray for good things this year. You have no idea how timely that message is for me. Thank you. Sincerely and in him. You see, friends, you don't know what other people are going through. You don't know the challenges along someone else's road. You don't know the heartache that they might be walking in. You just just don't know. You don't even know what they're saying might be the result of some pain or trauma that they're going through. And, And so that's why I would articulate that there is never gonna be a time that you will regret responding with outlandish love. I'm telling you, it is a harder road. It's a heart-wrenching road sometimes, but friends, it's a higher road because it's a Jesus road. It's a a bless your enemies. It's a turn the other cheek. It's a go the extra mile. It's a following in the footsteps of Jesus road, but it's the right road for his followers to walk. I also wanna let you know that God was not disappointed in Easter services that year. But he was also, because he was glorified by everything, but he was also not disappointed in our response to criticism about Easter services that year. He was glorified in that as well. And he will be glorified as his followers continue to love one another outlandishly. 
See, Jesus says this in the book of Luke. He says, but to you who are willing to listen, abundant life, are you willing to listen? He says, to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek. Also, if someone demands your coat, offer your shirt. Also, give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. See, I, I want to love like this. I, I actually want to be a part of a whole community of people who love one another like this, with the love that comes from Christ, that we love one another in creative and, and winsome and wonderful ways, in over-the-top, outlandish ways, because that's the way that God has loved us. And I do just want to confess, I think it's impossible for us to do this on our own strength. I think we just cannot do it unless we stay close and connected to our Lord and Savior. In fact, in the Psalms, King David writes this line, and it is fantastic. It's, I think it's so beautiful. It's, it's somewhat intoxicating to me because he knew he was the beloved of God. He knew he was the anointed of God. And so at one point in the Psalms, he writes to the Lord, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. And in English, we know what that means. If, if she's the apple of your eye, she's your cherished one. She's your delight. If he's the apple of your eye, he is your pride and joy. And so David is saying to God, all of these things in the Hebrew, keep me as the apple of your eye, your cherished one, your pride and joy. But in the Hebrew, there's also another meaning that can be ascribed to that phrase. And it's little man. In other words, in Hebrew, David was saying, keep me as the little man of your eye. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me at first. But then I realized if, if you're sitting or standing right here next to me and the light's coming in just so, and I look right in your eye, what do I see? I actually see my own reflection. And, and how much of my reflection do I see in, in your eye? Well, because of the convex of the eyeball, I actually see my entire reflection. In other words, I see the little man in your eye and it's me. And what David is saying is, Lord, keep me so close. Keep me so connected to you that I am the little man in your eye, that I can see my entire reflection in your eyeball. I wanna be that close to you. See, I have this in mind that when Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me, that apart from me, you can do nothing. I think this is what he means, that we would remain so close to him that we are the little man in his eye. Well, friends, we need his help to love like this. So why don't we go to the Lord right now and simply ask him for his help? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. We just wanna say thank you for abundant life. Thank you for, for this church body. Thank you for this family of followers of yours who are, who are walking with you, who are, who are seeking to live a life of outlandish love. But Lord, we confess that we cannot do this on our own strength. And so we simply ask that you would pour your love out over us and into us, that you would allow us to remain in your love, to, to stay so close at, with you as we abide in you, that your love is what fills us and fuels us. And it's your outlandish love that we're able 
to shower over those in our world, over those we work with, over those we are neighbors with, over our family, over our friends, and all those in this valley that abundant life has influence around. We just ask that you would make this a beautiful pinnacle of love in this greater Portland area. So we pray this knowing that you hear a prayer and we are so thankful for that. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.